0: You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast.
1: When I do think about it, really resolution is quite a Western concept. The idea that anything is is completely resolved forever, it's kind of uh, against the law of physics as I see it as an Aboriginal person.
0: Thank you, Allah. Nyarina Evelyn Ara hello. Thank you for coming here. Before we do anything else, it is of utmost importance, but also a great honour and privilege to be able to acknowledge that we are standing here today in the lands of the Boorong Wurundjeri peoples and to pay our respects, our acknowledgement, our reverence to the broader Kulin Nation. Uh, Their people have protected this land since time immemorial. Their sovereignty has never been ceded, and we are so lucky to be able to be continuously uh, taught by the guidance of Boon Wurrung, Wurundjeri, and broader Kulin Nation elders, leaders, um, scholars, scientists, ecologists, um, activists, um, who, you know, continuously visit this place and continuously remind us of the importance of their ongoing custodianship and their ongoing care for country. Uh, My name is Evelyn Araluen, but you're not here to see me. You are here to see the Queen herself, Melissa Lukashenko. Um, (laughs) Yeah, too right. (laughs) right. Um, This event is a part of um, Melissa's broader book tour, um, but also it's part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling. There's a lot of other blackfellas who are speaking throughout this week and a lot of really amazing events that you should be checking out. Um, so we are here tonight to have a yarn about the most exciting book that I have been, that has, oh, no, I'm going to get in trouble if I actually, I shouldn't, I shouldn't pit people against each other. There's lots of exciting black books out at the moment. <laughs> As a Bundjalung person, I happen to be quite excited about this one. <laughs> am I allowed to read your bio? What do you want to stuff that? They, yeah. kinda, they probably know who you are. Yeah, they know who I am. All right, yeah. Melissa Lukashenko. <laughs> Um, uh, This is um, your seventh novel. It is. Yes. All right. So if you haven't gotten the full collection, they've actually been just dressed up all new, nice and pretty um, by uh, Jenna Lee with University of Queensland Press, so there's beautiful new cover designs for all of that. Um, Too Much Lip and Bimby have won a bunch of prizes and are amazing and excellent and very well-revered, uh, but you can also get newly bound copies of Steam Pigs, Killing Darcy, Hard Yards and To Flash. All right, all of that um, aside, hello, how are you going? Hello, I'm going good. Great. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, We're just going to do an hour of karaoke, um, so I hope you're (coughs) keen for that. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about Eden Glassy and about the process of coming to write it? Sure can.
1: Jinguwalo, everyone. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation and the fact that I, as a visitor to their country, am exactly that and pay my respects to elders um, past and present. Eden Glassy, yeah, well, in uh, 2024 next year, September, I think, it's exactly 200 years since a white bloke called John Oxley sailed up the river uh, for the second time and decided on his second visit that the Wara, uh, which was, you know, the river that gave life and um, around which the the lives of Yagura people centred, um, had no owners... Was in need of new of new owners, or if or in need of owners, and should be called the Brisbane River. And so I thought, well, there's going to be celebrations and commemorations and commiserations and all kinds of things going on. I want a book that puts an Aboriginal perspective on that whole event. Uh, and at the same time, I didn't want to write about first contact. I didn't want to write about that moment where black met white, because I didn't want it. To be centering white people in our history to that degree. So mm-hmm. I set the book one generation after invasion, mm-hmm. uh, at a time when the population of First Nations and colonists in uh, what's now South East Queensland uh, was roughly equal. Mm-hmm. Right? So uh, Brisbane was, in many important ways, still Mugunjan and Magunjan was populated by about 800 to 1,000 white people. Not many convicts left by then, Uh, a few convicts, uh, ex-convicts, military, uh, bureaucrats and merchants and working-class whites, and then an equivalent number of blackfellas, both Yagra local people and Aboriginal immigrants from the surrounding areas, and it was a point where history was about to tilt dramatically as the population shifted to become majority white for the first time in 80,000 years. So that's why I set it and I wrote it in order to have something pushing back against the colonial narrative at the bicentenary of Brisbane.
0: How do you feel this connects to the other books that you've written thus far I've I've myself like I was when I heard that you were writing another book for some reason in my head I thought oh this is going to be the next stage in the unofficial triptych of um, <laughs> of Mullum yeah. too much lip and then Eden Glassy and I wonder how yeah. does it do you think consciously of it relating to some of your any of your previous books because it is, and you'll find this out when you read it, this is, this is very new and I'm going to talk about this in a little bit because it just blows my mind, but, like, really stylistically and in terms of the, the, the method, like, this is really new work. Mm. So mm. I wonder if it's Genesis is logical to you in that way? Um, I think
1: the Genesis is logical. I don't think of it as part of a trilogy in any way. Mm. I mean, obviously my female characters are all young and Aboriginal and in the modern era they're political and rage-fuelled or rage-informed, as what a reviewer could put it, <laughs> which I liked. So. Um, but beyond that, no, I think of my books as all all coming out of a Bunjilung ethos, all coming out of a Bunjilung sensibility mm. and, and from me in, in this decade, the, you know, the last decade. But no, I hadn't thought of them like that it's kind con- if anything ties them together it's country and this is set slightly north of course of where um uh, mullumbimby and too much lip are set. it's a uh, very far southern queensland rather than northern new south wales
0: can you tell us about the research process
1: yeah the research process god um I've been thinking about this book for decades, ever since I read the uh, reminiscences of Tom Petrie. And Tom Petrie was uh, one of the very early white colonists of... uh, Oh, his family was. Actually, they were the first free white people in um, MacGungeon, Brisbane. And uh, his father was kind of known as the grandfather of Brisbane, Andrew Petrie, who designed a lot of the buildings, built a lot of the buildings went blind in middle age and continued to build buildings and design them and supervise the building of them as a blind Scotsman in the 1850s and 1860s. Uh, I've lost track. Was the question again?
0: Well, actually, jumping into to, to Petrie because mm. he was an interesting he was an interesting character, and I think if this had been a book that was written by a white fellow, this would have been the Tom Petrie, um, you know, solidarity with Aboriginal people, like the ally, yada yeah. yada yada yada. Yep. But there's this really powerful, interesting scene between. Tom Petrie, who, you know, for this, sort of this background, yeah, he's, this, this, um, he's, a, he's a settler, but that he had historic relationships, spoke languages, you know.
1: Yeah, he was an initiated yeah. man. So he was assimilated yeah. into Aboriginal society in 18... Uh, well, he arrived in 1838 with his family. So 1840s, he was spending the majority of his time with Yagara people in the Yagara villages, uh, was fully acculturated as a, a Yagara person, as well as being a white... Scottish immigrant um, yep. and would have been viewed by the Yagra as very much a part of their family and community. So he was the first bicultural person in Bri- Brisbane, except for a few convicts who had gone out and lived for years and years with um, fellows outside of the settlement.
0: He says something really interesting to Melanion, who's, who's probably the most central character, you know, mm. certainly of the historical sections of the book, Yeah. Um, uh, Malanyan, you know, is is, is questioning um, Tom, like, you know, what what are, what are they thinking? Why do they think mm. they can steal our land? And yeah. there's this that's a what I love about that scene, and we'll talk about craft throughout. I think, but mm. like how much you choose to withhold mm. from that, you can tell that this is a guy who's really struggling with you know, with that the duality of, of his mm. education there. Yep. But in short, he says, listen, white people don't have dreamings that keep them bound to place and you need to understand that, and Mulanion can't.
1: Yeah, yeah, and Mullanion and his mate Murray are horrified to think that people have come to their country, people without dreamings who are kind of adrift there. It's a bit like if zombies came to modern Australia, it's like these, these weird, bizarre, disembodied... Um, creatures, you know, of a criminal disposition. Yeah.
0: Mm. And so, so you've got you've got obviously um, colonial records and archives, and there's a thematic all throughout the book of interrogating how history is is accessed in in the here and the now, and and mm. how it, it it continues to reverberate. But also, you know, how do we what? What what classifies as like the authentic telling of history, and there's times mm. where you're very playful and cheeky, yeah. um, and and quite sardonic about that. But there's other times where it's you know um, it's the, a serious question. It's yeah. a very it's a very serious question, and the book is is certainly like it's a very compelling document of history as well. Like the archival work that you would have done in the colonial sense, I'm sure would have been just exhausting and and would have taken years, but there's obviously a lot of, you know, cultural... Di- there's so much dialogue that must have gone into, you know, community engagement, mm. the permissions, the structure of how yeah. to do this story, even even, mm. contemplating doing something like this, but also yeah. how, you, how, how, how you work with everyone whose story this also belongs mm. to.
1: Yeah, I did have to um, go to some lengths to get permissions to write the book... And the first time I asked the Yagara traditional owners for permission, they said, no. They said, why don't you write a Yugambeh story, you know, of uh, a particular ancestor from Lee, which is south of Brisbane. And I had to go back. And uh, normally my my personality is such that I don't usually push things like that. Mm -hmm. I would usually just go away gracefully and say, yep, no worries. You don't want it written. That's fine. But I did go back. I pushed a little bit harder and I said, well, this is what I'm trying to do and this is why I'm writing the book. And um, senior traditional owner, Gudja Kerry Charlton, said, oh, all right then, I'll meet with you. And we met and we liked each other and she endorsed the project. And honestly, it was uh, it was a revelation to me, you know, that thing about you, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And I know my culture, you know. I've, I've been learning about culture and Aboriginality for a very, very long time. And I think I'm across a lot of it. And then sitting down with Gudja Kerry, the specifics and the, the language knowledge mm. of this woman in 2023, incredible. And the way that she can just unpick you know, the names, things like the name of Dundalee, the, mm. the resistance leader, who is a central, he, he's not a central character in the book, but his hanging in the center of Queen Street in 1855 was always going to be a really pivotal moment in the book. Uh, It was a botched hanging in front of the entire population of the town, black and white. And uh, it it was gruesome and it was incredibly important in what um, happened from then on in colonial New South Wales, that part of colonial New South Wales, as it then was. So, um, yeah, and so his name, Dunderley and... uh, Gadge Carey just said, "Well, yeah, he was a duller man. You can tell from his name, Dundali," and and unpicking every single name, every single anecdote, she just the vast encyclopedic knowledge that remains
0: mm. um,
1: in urban Australia. In some cases, is just extraordinary. But yeah, it was it was a painstaking process to get permissions, and um, yeah, I, I think it's paid off.
0: Ah. Oh. Like, if you can't tell, I really like this book. Um, so I reckon it paid off. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you chose with this book not to use a glossary. You yeah. had maps. So, the, so, the, so mm. the, there's sort of this paratextual material to ground place. Paratextual. That's a big word. <laughs> <laughs> it does have maps. Um. <laughs> I knew I was going to get bullied. <laughs> um not bullied school <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, um, I like to give my audiences credit for being smart and uh, and savvy people, you know, mm-hmm. and I always I always um, make sure that you can take an educated guess at what words mm-hmm. mean from the context, mm-hmm. and you know it's not that hard it's not that hard if there wouldn't be 5% of the book that isn't written in standard English. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's... Uh, it's. Uh, I think it's a quite an easy read. I'm, I'm very much about accessibility, you know. Mm-hmm. If someone who hasn't finished high school can't pick my book up and read it and enjoy it um, after putting a little bit of effort in, then I reckon I've failed.
0: It was... We... We had a you know, we were speaking earlier and I'd mentioned that I um I, I listened to the audiobook as well, um mm. and, and got that like pretty much as soon as it came out because I'm obsessed with audiobooks and really loved it. And that Ursula what was it? Jovich.
1: Ursula Yovich.
0: Ursula Yovich. Like yeah. it's if if you enjoy an audiobook, her performance in it is absolutely fantastic. But um I I it does it's an interesting book in that it, you have a... I, I feel like I had a different relationship with it listening as an audiobook where mm. Mm. there was such a beautiful focus on interpersonality, on the dialogue and on these beautiful... You know, you have there's some stunning descriptive scenes um, and some really confronting ones. You know, The Hanging, mm. I think, is one that... Mm. That's a scene that I'm... You know, I'm, I'm glad I listened to that. Um, I'm glad I listened to that first because it, it was just so horrific and arresting and hearing mm. a human voice carrying through a process of, like, the most utter dehumanisation of a body is, mm, was, mm. A, was a, you know... That was,
1: that was the book. There were two um, images going into the book that I knew um, the, the book had to carry and also uh, were very important to include. One was The Hanging of Dundalee uh, and the other... I don't even know where I saw it or read it, but um, possibly on Trove... But it was the image of an Aboriginal man in Queen Street, which at the time would have been a dirt road, um, going from one bank of the river to the other across a a fairly narrow peninsula, uh, with wooden buildings, canvas shacks, uh, a few stone buildings but not many uh, in the colonial times. You know, dust, horses, horse manure, flies... And a man kneeling, an Aboriginal man kneeling in the middle of Queen Street and reciting the Lord's Prayer so that he would be given a mouthful of rum in a cup. And I thought, if that isn't colonialism, you know, in a nutshell, if that single image doesn't sum sum up everything that the British brought and what happened in that short space of time, I don't know what does. Mm. And so in the book, what I show is Mullanyan's response to that and his rage at seeing that scene and then the response of his elders to his rage and what what his rage has actually interrupted uh, in terms of the politicking between uh, Yagra elders and the British establishment.
0: One of the things that I think that was the most difficult thing to read just in a sense of, like, you know, how how we engage with story and, and you want you want resolution and you want you want you know the happy ending and you want things to go well for characters and obviously reading this and and it opens at a historical period mm. and actually there's a gorgeous scene that has mm. like diplomacy and planning and strategization but it's about thinking of this idea of of continuity, you know, like the you know, the dug eye are gonna leave and we will we will be able to return to our ways and and our good times are coming. Good times are coming. And uh, and obviously we as readers know, you know, that's that we know that doesn't quite go that well. But the um you make decisions throughout the book about where law and where um you know, and, and where cultural teaching can continue mm. to operate and where there are confrontations that the characters mm. have to take, where they have to adjust to that, or there yeah. things that would be done normally cannot be done. Yep. Um, and I wondered about that from your own process and your own positionality, you know, being being a cultural woman, being a Bundleung woman, how... I guess maybe this is a question of like your own your own mental health management of this, or your own heart managing this, and mm-hmm. and having to construct scenes of where where the where culture cannot address violence.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, the thing with the history is that I I, I did spend twenty nineteen you know reading a lot of colonial era novels that it, most of which I didn't know existed. Um, and reading history books, and talking to people, and uh, some archival work, and some of that was really hard to do. Some of that was grinding. And at the end of, towards the end of the year, I realised that, yeah, I was getting affected by it a lot more than I realised. Uh, and then the bushfires came, so everything was good. <laughs> um, but the thing about the history was, I knew that. I had to do that work, I had to immerse myself in it because I've got Keith Winshuttle sitting on this shoulder and Andrew Bolt sitting on this shoulder and they're both giving me shit about my book. And I worked and I worked and I worked and I worked and they still didn't fall off until I went and saw Professor Ray Evans, who's a, uh, a Welsh man in Brisbane. Uh, he's a deadly old fella and he's retired professor of history from UQ. And I was talking to him and it was actually talking to Ray that gave me the idea for the opening scene where the the black fellas are um, or the second scene where the black fellas are sitting around you know rejoicing that the the whites are all going and they'll have their country back soon and uh, I said to Ray look I've I've worked really I'm working hard to get it right you know to get these details right and he said yes and do this and do that and and I said to him well you know it in the end, I'm not a historian, I'm a, I'm a fiction writer and this is a novel, you know, it's fiction. And Ray just gave me this look, this kind of indescribable look and he said, Melissa, it all is. <laughs> and, and he really meant it, he really meant it and that was a great load off my mind to realise that. And then on the, at, the other, at the same time... Aunty Pat O'Connor, senior conglomerate woman, was saying to me, Melissa, you must get all the facts right, you know, because people are going to take this as gospel. And, yeah, so there was pressure. But, you know, when you come across things like there's this tortoise, right, in the book, this giant Galapagos tortoise. Oh,
0: that scene. Oh, my God. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, uh, but, um, and, you know, Galapagos tortoises are big, big, big things. And it, this tortoise is a real... Uh, like most of the book, 99% of the book actually happened and happened when it's written in the novel. So Charles Darwin takes the beagle and, um, you know, a bunch of other white people to the Galapagos Islands and does his research and whatever. And back comes what comes back are these three tortoises and they're called Tom, Dick and Harry. <laughs> I think they go on a voyage to England first, but Harry makes its way to Brisbane. And Harry lives at Newstead House, which was the centre of government in Brisbane at the time. That was actually what was briefly called Eden Glassy. So you've got the blackfellas, like, seeing this massive tortoise. And we eat turtle, you know, turtle is a prized food. Um, and... In my research, like, I'm finding out about this tortoise, I'm finding about where it lived, the fact that the bloody thing lived till 1986 or something, or 2006, and so this, this creature that Charles Darwin would have handled is alive in Brisbane in 2006. But the best part, like, the very best part of the story is that they, they wanted to propagate the species, you know, for whatever reason, and they kept trying to breed... Harry and, and you know try and get more Galapagos turtles again. And they tried for over a century until they found out that Harry was Harriet.
0: <laughs>
1: oh, my God. And it's just moments like that make it all worthwhile. <laughs> And that happened again and again, that sort of thing. See, so. why
0: I found that scene funny is because I was—I—I I, I don't know—I had to like cook dinner or something like that in the, the middle of it, and I was dead certain when I was going to come back, they were going to have eaten him. Because <laughs> they were—they were like, "Oh, we could eat. He—he he will feed us all for weeks, yep, right?" Yep, yep. Like, <laughs> oh,
1: dead certain. Should I um, yeah. read something? Actually, well,
0: wait, do you pick something if you'd like? I've got.
1: Um, let's see. Uh, what Do you know your about? own book yet? Well, we were we were talking about the Nita. Or the...
0: Yeah, so Nita's Nita's pretty early on cause or Nita... the cricket. Do you want to hear? Oh, a... the cricket. The
1: cricket's great. Do you want to hear about a cricket match or a um um the Aboriginal servant girl cricket match? Yes. Both. Buy both.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, the book. You can have both. <laughs> yeah. All right.
1: I read I read Nita because Nita's the central female character in the um in the colonial era. This is where Nita meets Mullanyan for the first time. Nita Nita scraped the final shreds of meat from the Binken shell and put her spoon down, smacked her lips, tried to convince herself that she was supremely happy. The coal-roasted turtle had been succulent, a far cry from salt beef. Yet, like so much else in Brisbane, the the meal seemed more like a memory of life rather than life itself. Nita traced the bony plates of the carcass with her forefinger. Her belly was full and complaint was disrespectful to the animal which had died to fill it. Plenty of Brisbane gurus were going about their business with next to nothing in their guts. Poor whites starved too for all they tried to hide the fact. But the taste of wara binken was so very different to those of her home, it was hard to feel truly grateful. And to eat alone, minus her brothers and sisters and parents, minus the sounds of the ocean wrapping around the family, minus the gulls, the splash of each wave on the sand, there was no end to the missing if she allowed herself to recall her losses, which was why she very rarely did. She stood up. Tasty, asked young Tom, suddenly appearing in the doorway, flanked by that rascal Murray. You're licking your lips, it must have been. Tasty enough, Nita told him, but next time I'll make soup. The bones are wasted otherwise. Oh, puss will enjoy those, and if not puss, then Rex. Sorry, Murray. Murray was blanching at the idea. I reckon the hog might enjoy a chew on what's left, Nita answered with a large dollop of malice. She hadn't forgotten Murray's performance at the inn the week before. Those strong jaws of his and will crack the marrow right out. Young Tom raised his eyebrows. She's chucking you to the swine, Murray. What have you done to deserve that? Murray's totem is the turtle. Murray scowled as the others burst into pitiless laughter. Who's that hiding in back of you? Nita asked, curious about the stranger in the hall. Tom stepped aside. This is Mullinyan, a saltwater jugum to watch, and oh, didn't he show it at the regatta? He'll be a ship's captain one day, you mark my words. Is that right? Nita answered dryly, taking in the arresting youth who stood there, black as coal and a head taller than the other men. He was naked but for Tom Petrie's kerchief, tucked into his string belt like an afterthought. The stranger met her gaze with benign ease, some kind of visiting dignitary. He was a fine example of manhood, lean and muscular, from daily work with his net and spears. Nita grew curious. Like him, she was a guru living far from her birthplace and making a life among people other than her own. Perhaps she and he might understand each other. The stranger's presence in the kitchen was making her heart pound in a way that other men had not. Nita found this unsettling. She was used to being chased by a horde of suitors and showing her heels to the lot of them. Why should this saltwater fellow be any different? The realization that she was staring at him prompted Nita to take Mullanyan down a peg or two. When she spoke, it was Tom she addressed. "'A pirate ship, I take it, you mean? "'Or has he perhaps struck gold to be talking of buying a ship "'when there's plenty of souls begging in the street for a dry crust?' "'Mullinion snorted, matching her sauce. "'Do you think I'd be standing here if I'd struck gold?' he asked. "'I'd be at sea, my keel crammed, "'full of young'un and bink'un as big as this table.' "'He knocked the wooden door—a uh, table with his knuckles.' and this saltwater will be setting sail in his own whale boat soon enough, with or without a gold mine. Nita's mouth watered at the mention of fresh sea turtle and dugong. Well, Mullanyan of the Yugambear, she told him breezily, you can bring me the very first young and new catch when you get your wonderful whale boat. I'll be waiting here with great interest, but you'll forgive me if I don't hold my breath meantime. Mm. (laughs)
0: I want to ask you about writing Nita, but first off, there is a lot of there's a lot of flirtation and there's a lot of desire in the book, and mm. there's there's romance, yeah. you know, yeah. and 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 um, that was meant to be a question. Sorry, um, <laughs> I'll take that as a comment. <laughs> uh, I how. So, so particularly in terms of this relationship between the historic narrative and and the more contemporary narrative, the one that's set in in 2024. And mm-hmm. it's interesting you chose to set it, you know, a year from. Well, actually, it would have been a couple of years from when you were writing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that you know that that does something quite quite interesting, I think, as well in terms of the circularity of this of this narrative. And and you know, there's a lot of discussion of the bicentenary and such a centenary. Mm-hmm. I, I can't count. Um, but the relationship between the two romantic relationships and drives, was that always something you were consciously building as a kind of a dialogue or a parallel or was that, um, mm. you know, yeah. did they have to be different dynamics in order to tell how much time had changed? Um,
1: oh, look, the the book is very intricately plotted out mm. and, you know, you if you read it three or four times you'll understand more about that. And at one stage I had a spreadsheet where I had um, totemic relationships, um, cultural degree relationships, and them transposed between the different eras, and it just did my head in. Uh, The complexity... It looked like one of those skin section pictures from the (laughs) central desert, um, what I originally was trying to do, and then I I abandoned that as as too complex. Um, But things like... Uh, Granny Eddie falls in the opening scene. Uh, Granny Eddie Blanket, who's a um, an elder, a very old, uh, gory woman who falls uh, and is in hospital for the duration of the book, pretty much. And so the fact that she is falling to the earth and then uh, late in the narrative she... And, and I use the term falling, 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 and that's a nod to um, Thea Astley, who also has a character falling, 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 in one of her North Queensland novels... But um, Granny Eddie rises towards the end and if you understand um, the cultural implications of that, you'll, you'll get something about what I've woven in. But as with all my books, you can read it as a, uh, a love story, mm. you can read it as an adventure, you can read it as history brought to life and you can read it as culture made manifest mm. if you've got the information.
0: I, one thing that I liked about thinking about this in relationship to some of your other books is is it, it struck me with the resonance to the ending of Bimbi, right, where, mm. you know, people have got their priorities and they're working on their priorities but nothing's necessarily completely resolved. The story isn't finished and particularly in terms of mm. some of the narratives who still have... You know, particularly for the young people, there's there's different forms of growing up to do, and quite quite different forms of growing up to do, yeah. um, and growing into into culture. But the the place where it ended was one simultaneously of resolution, you know, in its own in, in its own form. And what resolution mm. is accessible for such a violent colonial history in a place mm. such as you know such as colonial Brisbane? Um, I.
1: I've not thought about this in the same in the way that you're talking, but when I do think about it, really, resolution is quite a Western concept. Mm. You know, the the idea that yeah, uh, you know, it's like when Francis Fukuyama came out in the late '80s or early '90s and said the end of history. I was like 21 or something. I thought that's just so fucking ridiculous. Um, you know, even as a metaphor, it's ridiculous. But if you try and take it literally, how can just, yeah, it's just like, no, nah, stop talking.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> Things aren't resolved. Things, um, you know, life Life is what it is and, uh, you know, we we enter events or events enter us. Mm. You know, we swim in the sea of time for a while and then we don't. But the idea that anything is, is completely resolved forever is... Um, it's kind of... Uh, Against the law of physics, as I see it, as an Aboriginal person.
0: It, um, I've been I've been reading a lot of Eve Tuck recently. Who's a really amazing, um, uh, uh, she she uh, Alaskan Uganux um, uh, First Nations woman, mm. um, and who writes a lot about. In this area of indigenous studies and decolonisation, but she writes quite a lot about time, and she's got this particular phrase that she calls the long future, mm. that I really, um, mm. that I I find myself reflecting on quite a lot because it's it's a way of thinking for indigenous peoples. It's a way of thinking about, you know. The, the continuity of everything that's come before colonisation with an insistence on it, it will continue. The future will be long. Yeah. There will be a time yeah. after settlement. And of course, yeah. Yeah, the relationship between the histories of yeah. this book strikes me.
1: That's right. And, and that actually is really... There is a political movement, a mainstream political movement called long-termism, mm. um, which I think is great. And it's like The Voice. I, I will vote yes... Um, not because I think it's the best thing since sliced bread, but because, it, you know, the nature of political compromise and what's necessary and appropriate at this historical moment. And I'll vote yes, but without thinking that what happens now in 2023 is so incredibly important that it's going to overshadow everything for the next 20, 30, 40 years, you know, because even if it did, and it won't, even if it did... That's just such a tiny speck of time, Mm. you know, in our time here. Mm. Uh, And there will be treaty, there will be eventually reparations, there will be uh, a civilising influence on the colony that brings Australia back into um, a way of living that is sustainable, both between people and between us and the rest of the natural world. Um, So, yeah, we can get tunnel vision really easily because that's the way politics operates and the way the culture operates, the way the mm. Western mainstream culture operates. You know, I've, I've heard politicians say, oh, we, we really have to take the long the long view and think about five years down the track. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs>
0: How's your coal mines going, bros? Yes. <laughs> so, um, just flagging for you all that uh, there is a character or there's there's a thing in the book called the voice. Yeah. It's not... It's not the voice referendum. It's something else. That's just one of those weird coincidences.
1: (laughs) Um, It's quite, like, it's it's a very vicious and nasty and uh, destructive element of one of the characters and... uh, yeah, it's just an entirely a coincidence that it's called The Voice. <laughs> yeah, I uh, just
0: wanted to make sure we flagged that. Um, yeah. Another thing to flag, um, in a couple of minutes we're going to go to questions, so think about what you might like to ask. There's going to be roving mics, so that's, you know, we'll, we can be all, all dignified and such about it. Um, I've got kind of, you know, I, I've really got two questions, but but I'll try and turn to one. Um, so in the ignorance you talk about, Uh, You talk about Nita as having this relationship, not necessarily perhaps you know explicitly based on your own great grandmother, but certainly Mm. that informed by her. Informed by her, yeah. Yeah. So, so what was that process for you about, you know? Mm. I don't know. Some, you
1: know, I was talking before about making spreadsheets and doing character studies and all the work that makes you feel like you actually know what you're doing in a book mm-hmm. and, uh, and you know, halfway through or three-quarters of the way through you realise what you're actually doing and it wasn't what you thought and that's a humbling experience every time. Uh, the book I realised eventually was really about my mum who died mm-hmm. in 2014 and who I've dedicated the book to and the, the character of Granny Eddie, uh, she's the exact contemporary of my mum and so her voice and a lot, of, a lot of her attitudes, but not all of them, because my mum hid her Aboriginality. She was um, fairly assimilated into white society, but not entirely assimilated by any means because she grew up with her black great-grandmother and her mother and her uncles in the, with the extended family. So she definitely knew she was black, but she hid it as well as she could most of her life in order to survive. Um, but Granny Eddie's voice with, with that caveat is my mum's voice and um, real contrarian, that's why I called her Eddie uh, because an eddy in a river is where the, the water reverses uh, and so Eddie, Granny Eddie falls over, ends up in this fictional hospital on the banks of the Brisbane River and it is full of pethidine for, you know, 200 pages of the book. So we're in the very early stages. She's really stroppy. She, her contrarianness makes her, with the pethidine, to be quite a conservative figure and, uh, and always doing battle with her activist granddaughter, Winona. Um, and so whatever's put to her, she, she has to know better. She has to have a different opinion, including um, her kind of uh, frenemy... Um, ..a fellow called Dartmouth Rice, who's a white journalist figure that I just invented so I could put shit on him.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a hell of a way to write The Unreliable Narrator. Just have her (laughs) on painkillers the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, my last question before we go to the audience. Um, Mm. What did writing this book teach you?
1: What did it teach me? Well, as I said before, it taught me um, something about what I didn't know uh, because of my work I did with Gudger Kerry... Uh, mm. It taught me that I could write a historical novel, I suppose, which I didn't know. I've always had historical fragments in my work because, you know, mm. Aboriginal people are always um, inhabiting the past al- alongside the present all the time in all sorts of ways. And so, right from Steampigs forward, mm. there's always been that consciousness of um, what's, what's under the, the soil we're standing on, what's, what's come before us. Uh, what, who, which ancestors are walking alongside us. Um, but it also taught me that um, there was an appetite in Australia mm. for this kind of book, for these stories, and that's another reason I'm glad I didn't write it in the 1990s and I waited till now when I think... I think uh, tide is turning, you know, whether the yes vote gets up or not. I think we've passed some kind of watershed, I think, with the Marbo decision especially... Uh, and the work that all mobs all around the country have done so hard for the last several decades, I think we have reached a watershed where truth-telling is going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. So we'll do the truth-telling, you do the truth-listening, and uh, we'll see where we all end up, eh? Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right, yeah, I think that deserves a clap. (laughs) Okay, so there are some roving mics um, reminding you again, question, not a comment, save that for your therapist. Um, and if there are any mob in the room, I would like to prioritise any questions they might have. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit dark, so you might need to just like have a proper wriggle if you'd like to signal for a microphone. Um, just yell a out. Have Don't a be yell. shy. Have a sing, do a song.
1: Yeah, do a song. I'll start. <laughs> as I was walking one Sunday morning on Brisbane waters, I chanced to stray upon a convict, his fate bewailing, as on the sunny river bank he lay. I've been a prisoner at Norfolk Island, at Fort Macquarie, <laughs> and New
0: South Wales. you got to keep going, though. You've got to speak gotta, up. <laughs> someone's got to ask a question because I'm running really out of lyrics here. There her. we go, okay. someone there. I like the singing. Um, <laughs> um, I was wondering what was the most surprising thing that you learned when researching for the, the book?
1: Uh, there were many things, many things. Um, There was a great story from northern Queensland that um, went to the Queensland Parliamentary Papers for 1875 uh, and up in the Cooktown area, far, far north Queensland, this is at the point around first contact when, um, you know, the British had arrived, the soldiers or the the native police or whoever had arrived to, you know, colonise the joint by force... I read the story of this incredibly brave um, Aboriginal woman up there who confronted a soldier um, who I think had just shot her husband dead or done something equally horrific. And uh, she, she knew she was in terrible danger and she spat in his face and he shot her dead. And that's in the parliamentary papers. That was surprising. But the other thing that really surprised me and I was sorry, um, I was sorry I didn't find it earlier. Yeah, I I wish I'd found this earlier in the piece because I probably would have made more of it um, but I did get to mention it in the book. Uh, Whenever I write, I'm always really um, conscious that non-Aboriginal readers are going to have some resistance or some scepticism about what's happened to us, what's been done to us and, and what we've done in response. And so... Uh, To talk about slavery, uh, it's not a word that you hear much in Australia, and when you do hear it, you hear it in connection with South Sea Islander people, you know, the so-called Kanakas. But Aboriginal people lived in conditions of slavery uh, all over the, the country whenever the early colonial period was, you know, which is, you know, 100 years apart in different zones of the country. My mum was born in 1926 and she was raised by her grandmother uh, and by her mother and uncles. They all lived together north of Brisbane. And my mum's grandmother who raised her had been a slave. Okay? So I'm t- effectively two generations of socialisation away from slavery. Um, and I know that history, we all know that history... There's an Aboriginal um, fellow in Brisbane who's passed away now, well-known leader and activist, and he used to say that his grandfather had been sold for six shillings, and uh, people were shocked. Maybe a little bit less so these days, but still shocking. And so I had to, f- I have to find ways to talk about this stuff that are believable, and that aren't kind of clunky in in the narrative. And so. I found in my research, I was looking for something else and it just popped up on Trove or somewhere, this little article. It was actually the Petrie family, so I must have been Googling the Petrie family, come to think of it, uh, and a laundry woman, a white laundry woman, who worked for the Petrie family in the era where the book set, mid-1850s. Um, her husband was an Irish ex-convict who decided one day that he needed a carriage more than he needed a wife, and he sold his wife... Actually, he bartered his wife for a carriage and the Petries were then without their laundry woman. So I mentioned that in the book and, uh, you know, just the, the, the bizarreness of that, the, the bizarreness of a man actually selling his wife because he decided that he wanted an object, a material object rather than this woman. That, that was the most surprising thing, I think, among many.
0: It makes me want to divorce my husband, and he oh. didn't even do anything wrong. God, men suck.
1: Hey, don't divorce him. Get something for him.
0: Yeah, true. <laughs> get a, I swap I him for get an, an SUV. Yeah. Swap him for that four-wheel drive. Oh, I've got a Forrester. Good on. All right. <laughs> Thank you for that question. Do we have anybody else? Who'd... We've got another person, another hand up there, and then we've got one at the back there. Yeah. Thank Just... you, Melissa. Thank you, Evelyn. Yeah, stick your hand up. I can't see who's talking. Oh, yeah, hello. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Oh. Um. Uh, Toward the end of that, you spoke about how you were glad that you waited until this time or this moment in in time to to write this novel, you know, that you didn't write it earlier, say, in the 90s. Yeah. How do you know when you're ready to to write something or or what made it... I mean, obviously, you talked about there being kind of extrinsic factors that, you know, the Mm. tide is turning and so on and so forth. Mm. But Mm. how do you know when you're ready to write this story?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, Well, one of the reasons I didn't was that I wasn't living in Brisbane and I I felt just instinctively that I had to be living on the country that I was writing about, which I don't usually do. I usually live in a place for a while and then I go away and then I'll write about it. That's what I've historically done. Um, I guess guess one answer is to say that if I had written it then, it would have been a different book and it would have been the right time to write that other book. But I couldn't have done anything as... um, uh, complex, or I wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have achieved what I've what I set out to achieve now if I'd written and Glassy back then. Yeah, yeah. But um, a lot of writing is, a lot of writing is guesswork and instinct. You know, it was going to be a book that said um, the British came. This is what was here. Everything got you know, turned upside down and, and all this hypocrisy and damage happened and it was terrible, that was like the original thought for the book and then I had a dream and, and, or a possibly a waking dream. I, I don't know if I was awake or asleep but when I came to my senses after this strange experience, I was very, very clear that it had to be a book about ways forward together um, you know, to say that it was a visitation from the ancestors might be true. I don't know. It was really odd. It was unexpected. It wasn't anything I was looking for. You know, I went and spoke to the um, the country that I'm writing about and I spoke to the old people of that country before I started the book as well as to the living Yagura people. Um, and I humbled myself and I asked if this was the right thing to do. Um, but I certainly wasn't expecting that experience where, you know, love is too small a word for what I felt I was given, you know, I was given instruction, I guess, of what to write and uh, that's why it's the kind of book it is. One more? There was one
0: or two more, wasn't there? Yeah, we had... Thank you both very much. Um, Melissa, I was interested in your comment about, um, I guess, um, the perhaps brighter future that you foresee... Um,
1: around um, treaty and reparations, and I wondered at what the seeds for that vision are for you. Yeah, well, treaty is um, treaty is happening at a state level, of course. Uh, I think because we're so close to it, in in the long view, the the Marbo decision is we still don't understand the significance of it. I um, kind of give a nod to it in the book in a small way, but you'll understand that when you read the book. Uh, you know, what Uncle Eddie Quickie Mabo did was massive, him and the other plaintiffs. And it's, it's, it's good that Neil Murray wrote that song about Eddie Mabo, he's a hero, because it did upend the established wisdom in Australia and it made it concrete, it made it concrete, for the first time in two centuries, and we are still very much at the beginning of what that process will mean. But it basically meant the lie um, had to stop, you know, in a formal legal sense, and then what flows on from that is that the lies can stop in other ways, and hence the the renaissance in Aboriginal arts of all forms. Now, you know, the, the voice debate has been really toxic. You know, it's un uncovered for some people how racist Australia can be. Uh, But that's always been the case, you know? And that the reason these things are coming up now is because we're at such a a turbulent historical period. Um, So, uh, you know, my mate Debbie Kilroy says, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And things are changing Mm -hmm. and there is goodwill. Uh, And there's also a lot of very staunch and committed mobs all around the country who are getting land back through native title, who are understanding how to work the political system and who know our rights, you know, and in some cases, and it's the case for me, who have a real commitment to creating an Australia that is better than the Australia that we have, you know, of taking this penal colony and changing it into a civilised society where we care about each other, all of us, you know? Black, white, brindle, able-bodied, disabled body, gay, queer, trans, straight, anything, old, young, where everyone has value and everyone is looked after and everyone has dignity, you know, because that is the Aboriginal
0: way. On the one hand, that's a hell of a way to end. Um, can I also just say you did bring up Debbie Kilroy. Do you want to just quickly... Plug what Sisters Inside do, and I know they've got a conference coming up. If you want yep,
1: to... Sisters Inside conference is soon, yeah, early November, yeah. and um, yeah, if you're interested at all in what happens in our so-called criminal justice system, check out the work of Sisters Inside, and um, in particular the Free Her campaign, which um, literally gets um, Aboriginal women and girls. And occasionally, family members out of prison on um, on appeal, when through, well, as their appeal process goes through. Yeah.
0: Okay. Exactly. Thanks for coming. Thank you, everybody. You've been listening to Melissa Lukashenko in conversation with Evelyn Araluen, recorded on Friday, the sixth of October, twenty twenty three at the Wheeler Centre as part of Spring Fling. Spring Fling was proudly supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria and the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund. A special thanks to official bookseller readings and accommodation partner, the Sofitel. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.